a number of folks when they get to the end of life are so apprehensive they do the very tough make the very tough decision of going back into the closet saying i don't know how i'm going to be treated if i'm honest about who i am hello and welcome to what's important to you a podcast created by montgomery hospice and prince george's hospice center for learning with only one goal in mind and that is to amplify the volume and reach of diverse forces in healthcare. my name is terry james taylor and i'm your host i plan to give you intriguing insights on various topics including end of life and grief i want to open your minds to new perspectives on some often overlooked topics welcome everyone Today, our topic for discussion is end-of-life care in the LGBTQ community, and we have two guests with us here today, Lainey McCary and Phil Carpenter. Just a little bit about Lainey. Lainey has her master's in social work. Um, She graduated from Columbia University. She also has her divinity degree from Union Theological Seminary. And she started out in New York City as a social worker with the AIDS and mental health team. It was also part of visiting nurses um, of New York. And she has been with Montgomery Hospice since 2004. Some of the things that Lainey likes to do, she enjoys reading and she's already laughing because she knows I'm going to tell the story as her being a Trekkie. Um, (laughs) She loves Star Trek and I never forget um, some of the things that we would do at Montgomery Hospice, depending on what season it is. This season had happened to be Halloween and she was dressed up as one of the Star Trek characters. And that stood out (laughs) with me with her her, because she enjoyed doing that. And Phil Carpenter, he has worked with Montgomery Hospice a little over four years as a spiritual counselor. He's provided support for patients and families receiving hospice care at home, in nursing homes, assistant living facilities, and group homes. And prior to joining Montgomery Hospice, Phil worked in end-of-life care with other organizations as well, serving as bereavement services, volunteer management, faith and community outreach, and spiritual care. He's just done several things. And some of those stories you're going to hear today on the different things that he has done and how he's been able to help patients and their families. Some of the things that Phil enjoys is making music. Most of us like to listen to music, but he likes making music, biking, baking, and spending quality time with his three dogs. Without further ado, I'm going to start with you, Lainey. The same question is going to apply to you as well, Phil. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into hospice care? I started out in New York City working for the AIDS mental health team for the Visiting Nurse Service of New York. This is when AIDS was still a pandemic, and we did home care and did mental health care for people with AIDS who were homebound. And then as the pandemic became more managed, my career path took a little bit of a different arc, and I went into geriatric home care. And now kind of going full circle again with Montgomery Hospice, working with people who are at the end of life. So that's a kind of a brief summary of where I've been. This is Phil. Uh, thanks again for letting us be a part of this day and this educational opportunity. Um, my story is uh, somewhat similar and a little bit different. I finished seminary some years back and another century and was serving <laughs> on our church staff and um had a chance to volunteer for a hospice organization while I was working on that church staff in North Carolina. So that was my first exposure directly to hospice care. I got to do several different things in a volunteer capacity and became well acquainted with their missions, mission and what they were doing there in the local area in Winston-Salem, South County, North Carolina. And uh, that's where I first got my grounding in it. After moving up to, uh, to this area uh, some years after that, 
I then had a chance to go to work for a hospice in uh, Prince George's County. My roots in hospice care are really in Prince George's County. That's where I started working with what was then a hospice of Prince George's County. And uh, that was the first hospice that had been founded there. And we were a fairly small organization, did a lot of very exciting work, working with the, the whole gamut of uh, care for patients and um, getting to do even grief camps at that point. And that sort of led me to where I am today. It's been a very interesting adventure working with a couple of different hospices in the area, working with a pediatric palliative care organization and working with Hospice Foundation at one point. Just a learning and growing opportunity. And I'm very thankful to be here today and be a part of this. Thank you, Phil. And we're fortunate enough to have you now instead of you being at the other hospices. Thank you. <laughs> um, now that we've heard a little bit about the both of you, the first thing we're going to have discussion over is the, uh, the needs of the LGBTQ patients and caregiver at the end of life. We're going to identify misconceptions in caring for the LGBTQ uh, patients at the end of life. We are also going to review how professional caregivers can more effectively support inclusive care for the aging LGBT community. And lastly, we're going to discuss spirituality at the end of life for the LGBT community. So at this time, what I would like to ask Phil is, could you share how your profession has affected you as an LGBTQ person? Absolutely. Uh, I would say I'm very fortunate to work in hospice care. The very idea of hospice care is working with folks who are vulnerable, folks who are needing care, needing sensitivity. And that sets us up so very well to be caring and uh, very compassionate toward our own employees and our staff and those who work for the organization. What I would say is that hospice has uh, taught and reinforced for me the importance of being present to a person just as they are. No expectations, no need to change them, no agenda to make them different because they're fine just just as they are. And hospice has done that for me as well. Allow me to be exactly who I am without apology, without need to change or hide or misidentify myself or misrepresent myself, but I can be who I really am. And that has been such a blessing. There've been other challenges and other parts of the work lives that we all have had um, that, make, that maybe weren't so open and so uh, freeing in that capacity, but it's been a real joy to work in a hospice organization to be affirmed in what I, who I am and what I do. And that makes everything so much better when you're able to be in an, such an environment as that. Lainey? I feel lucky in that as a social worker, I've always been affirmed for who I am. I've been able to be out. It's never, never been a problem through all the different jobs that I've had as a social worker. And the agencies that I've worked with have been very supportive. So I feel very lucky to be able to say that I, in terms of my work life and my profession as a social worker, I've never had any issues about my lifestyle. Okay, thank you. How do you see the aging LGBTQ population need at this time? Um, I'll just jump in and say I think that the needs are varied um, and multiple. I think that my big concern is isolation. Um, as we age, are we going to face going back into the closet for care? Will our worries and fears about how our caregivers treat us, especially healthcare providers, will that cause us to become less of who we are? Um, so that's one issue. The other concern I have is will our POAs, our power of attorneys for healthcare, our partners, our husbands, our wives, whatever, be allowed to fulfill that role? In the past, we weren't there was very active discrimination against us. So 
that's a concern. Are we going to be able to continue to have our rights be honored and our responsibilities be honored? The third is that we really need to ensure that our medical um, and psychosocial needs be honored and to be respected Mm -hmm. by the healthcare community. So those are some of the things that I'm thinking about. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. What about you, Phil? For me, I see uh, the needs of the LGBTQ community at end of life as being a mixture of assertion and fear. Uh, The assertion is very exciting that I'm seeing a kind of a trend where folks uh, from varied backgrounds, especially this population group, are being more assertive in saying, this is who I am, this is what I need, this is what's important to me. And they're advocating for themselves. And that's a beautiful thing. But along with that, I also see, as Lenny is pointing out, a lot of fear. People who are very uncertain how they'll be accepted, how they will be treated. Will they be treated with dignity, with respect? Will they be scorned? Will they be shamed? And a lot of folks fear of being um, not just shamed, but also just rebuked and having someone try to tell them, oh, you can't possibly mean that. You can't possibly be this thing or that thing. But let me tell you what the truth is and having someone to attempt to try to do, quote, a conversion experience, whether it's from a spiritual point of view or a moral point of view, but having someone impose their agenda and their understanding upon them as an individual. Uh, that's a terrible fear to carry along with you. I walked into uh, care settings in a couple of um, assisted livings some years back where the couple was very, very careful trying to protect me from understanding that they were a, indeed a couple, a same-sex couple. And they put a lot of effort into it. And the particular visit I was doing that moment was kind of uh, late in the afternoon, early evening. And there was a, some crisis going on, not just pain crisis, but ex- existential crisis. Once I was able to assess and determine what I thought was going on, I was able to just talk very openly about accepting them right where they were and you know that hospice care and my presence in their home was to comfort them, mm. not to challenge them, not to confront them. And once we got through a little bit of that, it made it so much better for the person who was really struggling and his partner, his, his long-term partner, to kind of take a kind of um, expression, and then to talk more openly about what their journey had been up to that point. Uh, it's a great honor to walk with people during this time. And I really want everyone in front of me to be as comfortable as possible. Thank you. And, and I totally hear and absolutely feel what you're saying, because at end of life, we are fortunate to be able to be a part of someone in that process. So we need to honor that and we need to cherish it. And you also mentioned, Lainey, about seniors or the aging having to go back into the closet, which can be, I'm sure, totally devastating because they want to be who they are. Everyone wants to be who they are and be comfortable. But to have to revert back to doing that at such a time as Mm -hmm. going through the dying process, it's just unheard of. Mm -hmm. Um, I agree with what you're saying, and it sh- it should be unheard of, and unfortunately, it's a, not uh, an uncommon story. We really do need to train healthcare providers and caregivers that our stories are just as valid as anyone else's, that mm. our memories are just as valid and need to be treasured as such as anyone else's. So if we can get to a point down the road where uh, we can feel safe entering into a, a more structured environment, whether it's a nursing home or assisted living or whatever, if we know that those caregivers and those staff have been trained and educated um, yes. to accept who we are and, and not just accept, but celebrate, I think we'll have a big giant step forward. Yes. As we mentioned, the training essential is crucial. And like our mantra is, it's not about us, it's about them. We will hope that 
people get the appropriate training that they need mm -hmm. and just mm -hmm. have a heart. If I can sort of tag into that, I just want to share a story that happened a number of years ago now, but it's, it was such a powerful story at the time. It stayed with me all these years. A very close friend of mine was working for an assisted living, is actually a continuing care retirement community. And um, she was doing wonderful work there. And she told me one evening about a story that had happened that very day. One of the residents who had been there a number of months, maybe a year or more, had an overnight guest. And um, one of the caregivers discovered it was a same-sex romantic partner overnight guest and just created a whole lot of commotion around the community and around the executive leadership. There's a lot of chatter just going back and forth and back and forth about, oh, my goodness, look what happened. This is terrible. This is awful. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? And my friend, uh, who was not lesbian, gay, or bisexual, or transgendered, had the wisdom and the maturity to listen to that and go, hmm, you know, I don't think we'd be having the same conversation if he had had his girlfriend over last night, would we? And it just really cut off the discussion at the knees, so to speak. And the executive leadership, if not the whole organization, went, oh, my goodness, we hadn't thought about it that way. And my friend just said, well, I think we should. And that really changed the whole tenor of, of the conversation and, and the dialogue. And it gave them an aha moment as an organization to think, we need to talk about this. Uh, this is probably not the first time it's happened. It probably won't be the last time it's happened. And we also, whatever our policies are, there are our policies, but they cannot be discriminatory policies. Absolutely. And it was such a powerful moment for them. And I've always just admired my friend, like I said, a number of years ago for doing that. She didn't have to, but she did. And, and, and we always need that support and somebody to stand up. And a lot of times it's not the people who we think that would do something, you know, that would stand up. Mm -hmm. So now we, let's talk a little bit about the younger generation and what they are facing. Yeah, if I can step into that one first, I would love to. Mm -hmm. We had such a wonderful opportunity to hear some great, great words. I'm going to take this opportunity to read to you a quote, and I think you, you may recognize this. Um, this is from President Biden's speech. To all transgender Americans watching at home, especially the young people who are so brave, I want you to know that your president has your back. Mm -hmm. Now, I'll try to step out of politics for a moment because I don't want this to be about, about politics. I do want it to be about leadership, about so someone from the very top of our nation taking a stand. And he goes on later in his address to expand that. And he's very clear and has been not just recently, but for a long, long time, a strong friend and strong advocate and ally of the lesbian, bisexual, gay, transgender questioning community uh, to, to be their ally, our ally and to speak publicly and use his voice publicly to say, this is who we need to be. We need to be a, a nation that respects all people, that cares for all people, that looks after the needs of all people. Uh, the, the, the young people, uh, I wish I was one of them, but I'm not anymore. Uh, they are so brave. Uh, the word he used is so correct. Uh, I could not imagine having done this, said these things and felt this way when I was 20, 25, or even younger. I have friends, I have a friend right now whose daughter started transitioning uh, when she was in her teens, around 14, 15 years old. And it's been a very long process of the family discussing this at length, a lot of decisions made, uh, surgeries scheduled, a lot of things happening with parental support. And I'm just amazed at the parents as they, as they embraced their child lovingly, caringly, completely as their child is, not who they wanted their child to be, Right. But who the child really is. And they've yes. had no problem accepting these changes. Um, but what a brave thing to see and do. Uh, and it is different. 
so many folks, my generation and older, we didn't have that opportunity. We didn't feel the support. We could not have imagined having the courage to say some of these things and, and take some of these actions early on. And indeed, as uh, Lainey's already said, and we've already mentioned in this panel, a number of folks, when they get to the end of life, are so apprehensive, they do the very tough, make the very tough decision of going back into the closet, saying, I don't know how I'm going to be treated if I'm honest about who I am. So I'm going to, again, at the end of my life, pretend. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to play a role, and it's not really going to be authentic, but I'm going to play a role to make it easier for everyone around me so I can have more assurance I'll be treated fairly and equitably and get the services that I need and that I won't be uh, turned out basically, or maybe even uh, tossed out from, from my home. Mm -hmm. Lainey, would you like to? Well, I'm, I'm thinking along a little bit of a different line here. I'm, I'm thinking about the, the, what is it, like 30 uh, pieces of legislation or 30 states or something have uh, tried to enact or are enacting local or state local uh, legislation against the trans community. Um, against children, um, adolescents who are, who are considering this change. And, um, you know, what's going to end up happening is that families are going to end up moving out of those states, which is unfortunate. My hope is that um, our younger generation, um, because they, they are so solid in their beliefs, will be able to push back. And as they age and they, they come into that situation, you know, we're talking 30, 40 years down the line, um, they will not be afraid and they will push back and maybe there will be some um, better healthcare regulations in place to protect them. And that's sort of what I, where I'm thinking about right now, but there, mm -hmm. there really needs to be a lot of education and training and I'm, I'm relieved that we have uh, President Biden's back, but I don't know how long he's going to be in office and what's going to happen mm -hmm. down the road. So we need to take our future in our own hands. You know, I'm, yeah. Yeah. the other thing I would say to that, thank you so much, Lane. You're exactly on point with everything you said. The other thing I see happening is that it's not just folks who identify as lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, questioning. It's their friends who do not identify as such, who are fierce advocates yeah. and are taking a stand. Uh, that's what I would never have thought would have ever happened with my colleagues and my friends when I was younger. Um, but I see that. And because I'm a person of faith, I see it even within faith communities where there's a, a strong tendency among the younger populations that I, I experience and having encounters with, they take very strong stands for their friends. And uh, they, they protect them in a way that I would never have imagined being protected when I was that age, yeah. that young. And I'm so glad we're seeing that and I hope that continues. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And this is gonna lead me to, um, could the panelists share how to communicate non-verbally, uh, non-verbal signals to patients and residents that we are LGBTQ friendly. And just uh, what you all are saying, and I, um, I'm gonna let you all speak to that. Um, but it's unfortunate that we're where we are, where you have to, you know, signal or on the side let someone know, um, signaling patients because we all do work with the patients. So right. if you um, have been in that situation or um, maybe certain conversations that you may have had with family members or even friends or partners, one of the things that can be done non-verbally is simply having. Um, a rainbow flag pen mm -hmm. 
or certain insignia on your on your bag, on your person, on your coat, on your jacket, mm-hmm. um, that lets people know that you are safe. Um, it can be very subtle, um, but for someone who's looking for signs, they're going to notice that. They're going to mm-hmm. see you're wearing a rainbow flag, or maybe you have a ring with the rainbow flag. Uh, I have one of those I sometimes wear, or bracelet mm-hmm. um, that I wear as the, the the pride bracelet I sometimes wear. Um, there are a number of ways in which you can signal that you are a safe person to talk to. You don't have to say it out loud, but uh, the folks who are looking for the signs will find that, and they will they will understand uh, qu- quickly that's um, a, a safe subject to talk about, and they can maybe let down their guard a little bit. And certainly the things we say, but I'll step back and let you respond too. Mm-hmm. Well, I think the most important thing is to be open and to listen to the stories, um, to, pro- to just provide a welcoming space, um, which is sometimes really hard to do in a nursing home setting, um, but to really be able to listen and honor um, the individual stories and, um, you know, I'm thinking about the little memory boxes that, that sometimes go outside of a, um, mm-hmm. a room. How are they filled? They're filled with the memories of that person. They're filled with their history. Be open to hearing what our history and what our memories are. To do that in, in a way that is welcoming, um, a smile, a, a pat on the shoulder, a nod, a willingness to take the time uh, to let people tell share their own individual unique stories what i have to say thank you Lainey. Mm-hmm. and you can show an interest in just uh as lenny was saying i think you're kind of leading to this you can notice the pictures around the room of uh, certain events people places where they are um some of the, the family pictures will show very clearly there's an openness um to a, a same-sex same-sex partnership or there may have been a child who's transitioned and they, there may be some signaling around that too, around pictures and paraphernalia around the room that will let you know this is important to the family. And you can recognize that. Um, many years ago, I learned the great technique from a wonderful social worker about reading the pictures on the wall and just looking at them and saying, that is a beautiful picture. Was that your wedding day? And learning all sorts of history just from asking about a picture. Mm-hmm. You can do that with other pictures too. Absolutely. Okay, thank you. And as, as we can see, we can go on and on with just one particular question. The next um, thing that we want to talk about is how are the things we can do as professional caregivers to help ease the burden of the aging LGBTQ community? So I'm, I'm thinking training, 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 education needs to be done. And that means honoring the uh, advanced directives of the of the couple, if there is a couple, if it's an individual honoring the advanced directive of that person, honoring who the the family of choice is. Um, You know, some of us aren't lucky to have a biological family that is supportive. So who are are the family of choice? And make them welcome. Um, Honoring the wishes, really the the wishes and the hopes and the dreams of, of who this person is and what they want at the end of their life. That should be something that's universal, in my opinion. Um, I agree. I agree, Lainey. And with um, and Phil, you may want to talk a little bit more about it because I know you all have stories of partners not having the rights from the families to help make the decisions, especially when. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I would like to speak to that. 
I want to go back to the first point uh, for just a second and say that uh, it does start with training, as, as Lainey has said. It uh, starts from the very top of the organization, the board, the membership of the board, the policies, the procedures, the artwork, the pictures in the organization. That sets a tone, and the training flows from that. So it has to be all the way throughout the organization. Yeah. Um, uh, the other thing that I always try to do, and, and I, I'm very big on visual things for myself, and I encourage mm -hmm. others to find a visual cue that works for them. For me, it's important to understand what my beliefs are, my values, my thoughts about the world are, and to recognize them as just that, they're mine. Um, and so when I'm walking into someone else's room, I don't need to take my stuff into their room. I like to take the, the idea that I have a kind of a cloak, to borrow an old, war, old world word, um, and all my stuff is on my cloak. But when I'm walking into their room, I'm going to hang my cloak yeah. on a hook outside their room. I'm going to leave it there because I want to walk into that room and be as open as I can to the people in front of me. Mm -hmm. What's important to them? What do I see in the room? What do they talk about? Uh, how do they present? Um, are there apprehensions I am sensing? Uh, are they saying certain words that are kind of code words I, I need to be picking up? I need to respond to that. And I don't need my filter of all my stuff getting in the way of hearing what they're saying and what they want me to understand. Now, my stuff is so important. When I leave the, that home, guess what? I'm going to pick it back up and take it with me because uh, it is important. It is mine. And I don't want to lose track of it. Mm -hmm. But what I'm saying is it's, an, it's really nice to me to have something that reminds me the importance of being open to the, the folks I'm walking in to, to spend time with. Um, so I'll kind of stop there. Lainey, I see you're about to say something. So go ahead. Um, and I'm going to flip that a little bit and talk about the social worker role. Um, one of the things that's really crucial uh, for social workers is to respect our boundaries, um, to respect our boundaries, to respect our patients' boundaries. And so we want to make sure that, similarly to what Phyllis said, that we, live, we leave our stuff at the door. Um, we're going to respect that boundary and uh, allow our our patients, um, our clients, to have the emotional space they need to, uh, to be able to trust us um, and share the story that's, that they need to share at that time. Um, if we can respect our boundaries, um, that, that is a, that's something that would help, I think, a lot. I was just going to say one more thing uh, about the idea of respecting uh, what people's needs are, what their expressed wishes are, especially when it comes down to advanced directives and powers of attorney and such. Um, if it's okay, I want to share one more personal story, then I'll kind of sure. back out of the conversation. Sure. Um, many years ago when I was first working in hospice chaplaincy, I had the chance to do a, a joint visit with another chaplain. Right. It was back in the day when we actually did some night visits, and this was an evening visit. We walked in not knowing a whole lot about the patient family we were about to visit, and that was crucial because uh, we walked in and there was a lot of tension in that room. And uh, we walked in and the other chaplain is much wiser than I am. I'll just put it out there and say, I follow his lead. He read the room very quickly and was sensing there was a lot of hostility, not just tension, but hostility. And he couldn't quite figure why, but he knew the patient was in the back room. So he walks quickly to the back room and figures out this gentleman is indeed dying. And in looking back there, he saw a lot of pictures of this couple, the same sex couple in that room. And again, being smarter and wiser than I am, he came out and he said to the group, he said, I know there's a lot going on in this room. I, I, I know that. Um, and we can get to your issues later on, but I can tell you that this person in this room back here is dying and there's no one back there with him. Right. 
I'm going to go back there and, and be with him. And I invite anyone who wants to come join me. And it was a lovely thing for him to say and do because he was not being judgmental or, you know, telling anyone what they must do or shall do or how dare you. He was simply modeling what he thought was important for that patient who was indeed dying. So I quickly joined him. And one by one, not everyone, but several folks from that group came in. The story came out later that none of the family knew they were in this relationship and they were very surprised and not, not at all pleased. But they did rally to the point to realize that there was someone they cared about dying. Yes. And, and they met that need and they could do with the other things later, which I, I'm assuming they did at some point. They never talked to us much beyond that, but at least it brought the tension down for the time that we were there. And they really responded to the person in front of them. Mm-hmm. And I just appreciate the fact that I was led by someone who was smarter and wiser. Mm-hmm. Now that, that is very good. And the way he handled that, that just gravitated to the, the most important thing at hand, which is quality at end of life, which is what he was trying to give his partner. And I, I would say the family had to recognize it at that point, it was not about them. I'm gonna ask you guys, what do you know now that you wish you had known when you first started this work? Well, what I will say is this, um, I wish I had known that I could relax and be authentic. I wish I'd known that early on. I've learned that as I've gone. I wish I'd known earlier on that that would be a help to me, not a hindrance. But being honest and being authentic is so much easier. It takes up so much less energy, number one, uh, if you can just be who you really are mm. and let that serve as a way to engage people. Uh, not overwhelm them because it's never about me when I walk in. It's not about me. I don't want it to be about me. But whoever I am, whoever any of us are, needs to be open enough to accept and use that as an an entree to the folks that we're about to, to work with. Uh, so I wish I had known that and had been able to, to use that to their advantage, not my advantage, but to their advantage so they could engage with me more easily without me feeling kind of, feeling like I needed to be as guarded as I was. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to uh, come at that with a little bit of a different angle. Um, when I was a young lesbian, I felt that everybody had to be out and proud. Um, that was just crucial. That was the way it was. And um, it, uh, it took me a long time to recognize and realize that everybody's journey um, is different. Um, everybody's um, journey of acceptance um, and who they are as a person, um, as an LGBTQ person is different. And we need to honor whatever those journeys are. If somebody's in the closet or if somebody's not in the closet. We need to give people the space to be who they are. That was that was something that over time I've had to really understand and accept. Thank you, Phil. Would you like to comment? Yeah, sort of. Sort of want to expand on that and maybe even go in the direction of the next point that we were going to cover anyway, which is that um, it can be damaging to assume that my story is the model. Mm. Uh, it's, it's inaccurate. It's just wrong for one thing. My story is my story. Um, and I should not presume that that's going to be the model for someone else. Mm-hmm. That just because I know a little bit about my story and my adventure and, and my existence in this world, that may have absolutely nothing to do with the people that I'm working with. Uh, and I need to be very clear about that and let them be my guide and let them tell me their story as much as they want to. Let them fill in the gaps but not to presume that, oh, well, they're going to be just like me because it's a gay couple that I can under, I can identify. We'll have the same issues and the same story. Not necessarily. Uh, 
culture has a lot to do with this, family background, personal habits, and ways in which we act and interact with others have a lot to do with this. It's, it's um, a dangerous thing to assume that I know a lot. I know my story very well, but I don't know a lot about them until they tell me, until I have a chance to be with them for a while and experience that with them. Oh, so yeah. that's what I've learned throughout this. All right. Thank you. So now we're going to talk a little bit about what is the most damaging assumption that can be made in caring for the aging LGBTQ population and how have you learned to avoid it? So um, I, I'll start with that and saying that a few damaging assumptions that, I, that come to mind is that our gender orientation stops when we age. Um, you know, we are who we are and, you know, we are going to be that way until we die. Um, just because we are older doesn't mean we stop being, you know, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgendered. Um, and and uh, along with that is the, uh, is the idea that we're invisible. Um, we're not invisible. Um, but our fear can make us that way. Um, so those are two, some of the, the damaging assumptions. You know, we're not, we're not stereotypical. We're, there's no stereotypes. With, uh, with who we are, we're, we're kind of cookie cutter. Uh, we are who we are just as the rest of the population is. Um, there's no one you know, stereotype of somebody who's a lesbian or a gay man or a bisexual or transgendered. Um, so those, those are some of the damaging assumptions that I think are, um, come to mind when I, when I think about that question. Yeah. What comes and to I'd mind for you, Phil? Yes, of all the all that Lainey just said, and um, again, people teach me along the way. And there's a powerful teaching story from having encountered a, an individual some time back um, that I thought I had the information I needed based on the history that had been taken. We had the H and P from our medical files, and a uh, little bit of information from our first nurse visit. And um, I walked into a visit and was using the name that was on the printed form, and uh, was getting. The, the very clear sense pretty quickly, that was not a good thing and happened to check it out. I, I was trying to read what was going on. And I said, uh, am I saying something wrong? Maybe there's another name and found out that the person I was talking to was in the midst of a transition. Mm. And that was a birth name that I was using. And that was a name that was really hurting him oh. at that point. Uh, he was going into a transition from male to female. And that was just a, a painful reminder uh, that he really thought he had been more clear about initially. And maybe he, maybe he was, and we didn't catch it in our, our intake. Maybe he wasn't as clear as he thought he was. Uh, but whatever the case was, there was a need there that I wasn't getting at first. And so I've learned to not just assume that I have the best information in front of me, even if it's printed, even if I've read all the notes. I need to also let the person tell me, and let them instruct me and guide me to what's most important. Uh, so that's an assumption that um, I think we can all make is that, well, I've done my, my reading of the notes. Surely I know everything I need to know about this person as I walk in. Well, you only know what was printed at, at that time. And you only know, you only know how much uh, they were willing to share or felt comfortable sharing at first. Maybe as they get into our care, they are more comfortable to share more and more of their story. We need to be open and teachable throughout their time with us to learn more of their story that they want to share so we learn better how to care for them. And that's just my point of that is just being always open to being educated and learning more. Absolutely. Thank and you, the other Sarah. thing, I'll just step in for a second. The other thing that comes to mind is that we are uh, really fluid. Um, 
um, you know, we're not just one or two or three or four. Um, our, our gender fluidity is something that we really need to, to honor and accept. And um, as we age, that continues to be the case. So I just wanted to let that share that as well. Thank you. Let's talk a little bit about how you may have been treated because of being within the LGBT community and share with the audience the misconception that's out there. Um, because you're asking how I've been treated, I'll share a story about treatment and um, then I'll move away from that. Um, my story of coming out was not the most pleasant in the world. It wasn't horrible, it wasn't most pleasant. I've been very fortunate in the last 20 plus years, but coming out was not so easy. I was working on a church staff and a um, supposed friend of mine became really, really curious, uh, oddly so, in my life and began to explore and probe inappropriately and went to the church leadership with her, her thoughts and her, her ideas. Uh, that led to the church leadership summarily uh, dumping me out of my, my position very quickly. I was fired. and. Um, mm -hmm was left to, to figure out life beyond that point. And what I was saying when I said this recently was that I lost a job. Yes, I did. That's true. Um, but I lost not just a job, I lost a career path that I'd planned for. And that was gone. That was taken away by that one event. Um, and I had to change and completely from what I'd planned on doing to what I could do. Um, and by the way, for those of you who have a Master of Divinity, like Laney and I do, it is really a great resource to help you work for Pepsi-Cola doing accounting, because that's what I did. <laughs> Just tripped in backwards into a position with Pepsi-Cola. Um, and I was thankful, absolutely thankful to find that. My point is that, um, mm. uh, yes, discrimination is real. It's out there. I would not go back and change a thing about who I am, I would love to have had a little more control over how I came out. Uh, but that's just what it was. I'm very, very thankful, very thankful to be who I am today, to be where I am today, to do the job I do today. So I don't want to come across as bitter and angry because I'm not. Uh, it was just a, an enormous shock and it was very, very upsetting at the time. Um, it affected not just me, it affected a lot of people around me. And um, I'll just kind of let that part just go as it is. Um, so just to say discrimination can be real and it's based on a lot of fear. The very reason I was fired from my position was there was this enormous fear. I was going to somehow, I guess, convert uh, in mm. uh, the sense of the word, a lot of folks to be gay or lesbian or mm. bisexual. I'm not sure what the fear was, but there was a lot of fear about what I was doing, had done or could do to the people I was working with. And I did none of the sort. Thank you. Just the same. But that was the fear. Mm. And uh, for me, it's, it's uh, kind of a, a little bit of a different path. Um, I, you know, I grew up in an, in an urban city with uh, relatively liberal uh, intellectual parents, um, but I really fought hard against coming out. It took me over 10 years to accept my own lesbian identity. My own internalized homophobia was so strong. Um, it was really a battle. Um, I didn't want to accept my lesbian identity because I was afraid of the consequences. Uh, it turned out some of those consequences were real and that my family did ultimately reject me for about, you know, seven or eight or nine years. But we got over that eventually. Um, so if, if we can, I, I say that because of the concern of 
as we age and as we age into a, um, a more uh, uh, structured setting, if we need to go there, we will we succumb once again to our fears of how we will be mm-hmm. treated. Um, that's the concern that, that I guess I, I carry with me. Thank you, Lainey, and thank you so much for that very, very personal story that you're sharing with us right now. Um, I appreciate that myself. Thank you. We're going to talk about just a little bit about what you were saying, Phil, when what happened to you at church. We're going to talk a little bit about faith in the LGBTQ community. Faith in the LGBTQ communities. My goodness. Um, let me just start by giving kind of a background I grew up in a very conservative area in the, in the deep south near Atlanta, Georgia, and uh, there was no one to talk with in my world. This is pre-computer, pre-chat, pre-cell um, phones and such. Uh, there was no one to talk to, and faith was a big part of my life. Um, faith communities, from what I could figure out then, and some still are, resistant. They were very resistant in my world to anyone being outside of their definition. It was a very boxed-in definition of who was acceptable. And you dare not stray out of the lines because you were suddenly unacceptable and you were on a, a, a path to hell for, for sure in their regard. Mm-hmm. Um, not every faith group and faith community is like that. I thank goodness they're not. But that was all too common, at least in my experience and earlier on. There are a number of folks who still believe exactly that. And, you know, they cannot envision part of God's creation being out of what their experience is and uh, being something different from what they've uh, embraced and practiced throughout their lives. Um, I do see things changing. There are a number of faith communities now that are much more open and they choose to draw the circle very wide as opposed to closing it in and pushing people out. They draw a very wide circle and pull people in. What a beautiful concept. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love the idea of drawing people in and, and being an inclusive rather than exclusive. Um, many years ago, um, there was such a person who was struggling with his own faith, Reverend Troy Perry, uh, came from a very evangelistic kind of background. And um, his personal faith and his personal family were very much in, that, in the, the side of things that said, you cannot be anything except heteronormal. And uh, he knew very clearly he was not. And he went on to lose his job, lose his career, lose his family, and founded a church that would accept and very, was very explicit about accepting people as they are sexually and as, they, as their sexual identities might vary across many lines. And that was the Metropolitan Community Church. Mm-hmm. Um, I love quoting his book title. One of the first things he wrote that I know about was a book entitled, um, The Lord is My Shepherd and He Knows I'm Gay, <laughs> which always just made me laugh out loud every time I would just see the title, much less read the book. His point was exactly, well, if God created me, God surely knows me better than I know myself. And God surely knows and embraces me just as I am as part of God's creation. Um, That was a very uh, startling kind of revelation to so many folks who had a vision of a very vindictive, judgmental kind of God. Um, So it's it's, um, going back to a part of what Lane said a moment ago about the internalized homophobia. uh, That can get into your head from a religious standpoint, too, that you're not acceptable um, at all in God's viewpoint, not just your own, but also in, in the divine viewpoint as well can be very damaging. Um, as I said, I see a lot of churches that are much more embracing now, thank goodness. Some churches are still not, and they probably will choose not to be. But I think we at least have a chance now in uh, many different areas than what we did. Thank you, thank you. Um, 
I'm going to ask, is there isolation at the end of life for the LGBT community? And what do you have to say about this in your line of work? Oh my gosh, there is certainly isolation. And that is something that we really need to address. Um, you know, whether it's self-imposed isolation or isolation be because of where you are living, uh, it could be because your partner has died. It could be because your network of friends have died. Um, your network of, of people who would care for you have, have gone on. Um, so that is a big concern. Um, how do we widen the circle of acceptance so that we can um, be who we are and celebrate who we are at the end of our lives um, mm -hmm. as we have done um, and strive to do during the earlier part of our lives. That's the most um, important thing to do as we are aging and as we come into the, the final chapter of our lives, we really need to um, be with people who can accept us for who we are. Um, so that is a concern. Um, and that gets into the whole area of, again, education and training of uh, healthcare providers so that that isolation can be kind of broken down. Absolutely. Thank you, Lainey. Thank you. Lainey, I was talking yesterday about this very point, and we realized also that the isolation starts even before the very end of life. It starts as folks are beginning to think of retiring. Mm. Um, so many folks think, oh, I think I'll retire to the beach, or I'll retire to the mountains, or I'll retire to this community, or that. That's lovely. That's wonderful. For a lot of folks who identify as lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgendered, uh, they have another layer of uh, considerations. Where will I feel safe? Where will I feel that I will not be harassed? Where can I go that I will be accepted just as I am and I won't have to play a game? I won't have to pretend. Um, even before I begin to decline further physically, where can I enjoy these later years? And that gets into the decisions then where wherever you are geographically, um, are there places there that can provide care for you? As Lainey has said so brilliantly, that will do so in a very open, accepting, calming manner, respectful manner, uh, not tolerating, but actually respectful manner. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. And now that we're going into our last question, um, and I still say, as I mentioned earlier today, um, to have to live with that type of fear and anxiety when you're supposed to be, you know, nearing the end of your life with dignity and quality and no anxiety and the different things like that. I totally agree. Training, training, training. And um, as we always say, meeting people where they are, you know, just treating one another, being mindful and respectful. That's it. So now we're going to go into our last question. What are signs that show you that, our, that an organization is really inclusive and supportive of the LGBT community? I would uh, look at what their HR policies are. Um, do, do they have uh, bereavement leave? Uh, do they have hiring policies that are open and affirming? Um, those are some of the things that come up off the top of my head. Um, and educating staff, really. I would say absolutely all those things. And um, if an organization is gonna be truly inclusive, what does the board look like? Mm. What is the makeup of the board? Mm. Uh, policies were absolutely essential. 
absolutely no, no question. But what does the board look like? Uh, who are members of the board from the community? Do they represent the community? Do they represent the diversity of the community? Um, that sets a tone uh, to, to have that kind of representation. And then the, the phrasing, the words that are used, and HR should look very carefully at this, you're right, um, of all the policies, all the procedures that they are inclusive, that they show respect for all people and all systems and, and the diversity of sexuality as, it, as it's expressed uh, so that you were treated fairly and justly and respectfully, no matter how you identify. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I hope that everyone has enjoyed. So at this time, I just would like to thank everybody. And one of the things that we always do, we like to go into music at the end. And the, and the name of the song that we're going to play today is called um, Born This Way by Lady Gaga. Because <laughs> baby, you were born this way. Thank you to our listeners. This was What's Important to You, a podcast by Montgomery Hospice and Prince George's Hospice Center for Learning with one goal in mind, and that is to amplify the volume and reach of diverse voices in healthcare. To learn more, please visit www.montgomeryhospice.org forward slash podcast and download, share, and subscribe. Thank you so much for joining us today.